kind of scattered there. <laughs> I like that. My name is Ben. I have the privilege of serving as Common Ground's family pastor. And um, just a quick question. How many of you have ever uh, joined a club or a team or something, uh, some kind of a group, and they had some kind of initiation or some kind of hazing that you had to go through? Anybody? Okay, quite a few of you. Awesome. The point, supposedly, is to create some kind of camaraderie or some kind of unity uh, with the rest of the group because, supposedly, they all had to go through the same thing. Maybe it was in college when you pledged to a fraternity or sorority and they made you dress up really funny and sing really silly songs in public. That's a pretty tame one, but, you know, it's church. i got to make it PG. <laughs> or... Um, Maybe if you went to a, like a military academy, you probably got yelled at a lot your freshman year. When I made the varsity soccer team in high school, I had to stand facing the fence while the rest of the team took turns kicking the ball as hard as they could at my backside. Hey, welcome to the team. <laughs> Did you know that this happens with church staff as well? No, no, not the ball part, that's weird. <laughs> Super weird. It's subtle, of course, because, because we wouldn't want to think that our, our church leaders you know, participate in initiations or hazing or, or anything like that. So again, it's really subtle. And I'm really surprised because I've been here nine months and, and it, it's now my turn for that initiation. You guys want to know how church staff initiate the new guy? It was rhetorical. I'm going to answer anyway. Thanks, Pete. <laughs> they give him a really difficult passage to preach. The cherry on top is they do it on spring daylight savings when everybody's tired and cranky and late from that stolen hour of sleep. So here we are, thanks Derek, here we are, the morning of my public hazing. If you're like me, the passage we're going to be in today is one you probably have skipped over dozens and dozens of times in Philippians. And it kind of seems like it might be inconsequential. But is it, though? I, I have been thoroughly convinced otherwise, and I trust that God has something to say to each and every one of us through his word today. So let's go ahead and take a look. We are in Philippians. Go ahead and turn there to chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we are looking at verses 19 through 30. If you don't have a Bible, grab the blue one under the seat in front of you. In that Bible, it's page 1084. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. This is Paul writing. I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but, also, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. 
I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So be honest, was that a super jazzy part of Philippians? That was a trick question. You're not supposed to laugh. It seems kind of arbitrary, right? Just, just a personal message written in a letter between friends that seemed like only the recipient would actually care about these details. Passages like these are tough, but they're also God's invaluable word to us. So we need to examine this within the context of the rest of the letter. As you'll recall, Philippians is a letter written to the church in Philippi, a church that Paul the apostle started. It's probably his favorite church. He has got great relationships with those people. Paul is writing this letter while in prison, and the bulk of this letter is encouragement to the Christians in Philippi to, well, as they're facing persecution, to, to stand strong, even while Paul himself is in prison writing this. He asks that they be unified for the sake of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they they respond with humility, that they act and respond like citizens of heaven, living out this life with a purpose. The first part of chapter 2 really hammers out these themes. In verse 2, Paul encourages believers to be of, of one mind, and that's not like some kind of creepy hive mind, but rather that we are all singularly focused on the same thing, which is Christ exalted rather than ourselves. Then in verses 5 through 11, Paul points to Jesus as the ultimate example of humility and the glory due him because of his obedience to the Father in coming here and dying for our sins. Then in 12 through 18, we receive more instructions on how to live like citizens of God's kingdom and live out this salvation, work out this salvation under God's providential care with the right heart, attitude, and motivations. And of course, how to persevere in the midst of hardship. There's so much rich, deep theology in Philippians verses 1 through 18. Then suddenly Paul seems to downshift off this theological high that he's been accelerating towards and writes about things that seem only specific to the original recipients. The transition, if you're reading it through, can be somewhat jarring. What I didn't recognize until I was graciously given this passage to preach <laughs> was that this entire section, verses 19 through 30, provides us with a glimpse, a, a personal, real-life glimpse of what it means to be united, to be unified as believers. Want to know what Christian unity looks like? Well, this is what we're looking at in this passage. These verses speak to the evidence of unity not through commands we are given, but through personal, real-life relationships in action. This is important because the Bible is never abstract in what it says about how to live a Christ-centered life. It's always very specific. God, in his infinite wisdom and providence, included these verses as part of his message to his children, all his children, to show us a picture of a functional unity in action. So, what does this passage reveal about Christian unity? 
There's probably infinitely more, but we're going to pull out three truths from these verses that we should use to examine how we are doing when it comes to this idea of being unified with Christ and with each other. First, we can know we are unified as believers because we share an absolute belief and trust in God's sovereignty. I love that last song we just sang because it basically is the entire sermon. So thanks, Paul. You made my job a lot easier. Notice how many times God's sovereignty is mentioned in, in this passage. In verse 19, Paul hopes in the Lord to send Timothy, meaning if it's God's plan, then it will happen. In verse 23, Paul hopes to go to Philippi himself. Again, same idea. Also in 23, Paul admits he doesn't know how it will go for him in prison. He doesn't know what the outcome will be. But he trusts in the Lord that things will get resolved shortly because he has been submitting to God's plans. In verse 25, Paul finds it necessary to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi, an example of godly decision-making submitted to God's will. Then in 27, Paul acknowledges a near-death illness that God healed according to his mercy and his plans. I hope, I trust, I have thought God had mercy. Notice how Paul isn't giving instructions in these verses. Rather, through the Holy Spirit's inspiration and direction, Paul is revealing what's already in his heart, which is an absolute belief and trust in his good, wise, and sovereign God. Paul is demonstrating faith. Well, why, why is that important? Well, Hebrews 11:6 6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Five verses earlier in Hebrews 11:1, 1, we learn that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is our belief and assurance that we serve a good and wise and sovereign God who is actively involved in our lives, bringing out the ultimate good in our lives. But be honest for a second. Do you always, do you always see God's providential care? Do you, do you see his plans? Do you, do you feel his authority and control of things around you? Have you ever been confronted by, by difficult people or life circumstances that were wildly beyond your control and everything seemed to be falling apart around you all at once? Who or what did you cling to or draw near to during those times of trial, during that suffering, during that pain? The rest of Hebrews 11.6, remember, without faith it is impossible to please God. That's only half the verse. The rest of the verse says, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And not just that God exists, but that we rightly believe what the Bible says about this God. One of the hardest pills for us humans to swallow is that our functional belief in God's sovereignty is revealed in our responses. We can say whatever we want to, but how we respond when the rubber hits the road, that's our functional belief. It's during these moments that our functional belief is revealed. Hang tight, it's going to get bumpy here, okay? Check this out from Ecclesiastes 7, verses 13 through 14. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? 
Let me read that again. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will come that will be after him. When I read this passage, I think of my spine. And I, I think we have a picture of my x-ray up here. You. Don't mean to gross anybody out, uh, but this was taken a couple of years ago. Um, as you can see, this isn't what a spine ought to look like. Uh, over the years, I've, I've had to come to grips with the fact that hundreds of hours of chiropractic care, uh, physical therapy, and spinal injections uh, will do nothing to ever straighten out this crookedness. But you know what else has had zero effect? My complaining, my anger, uh, my bitterness, my accusatory attitude towards God. This, uh, well, this deformity uh, has been the source of immeasurable pain, both physical and emotional. Uh, the loss of jobs, tens of thousands of dollars, um, the loss of dreams of, and aspirations for what I thought this life would look like. Good dreams, God-honoring dreams, ways to serve him. I have no control, absolutely zero control over this crookedness. I have 100% control over how I respond to it. And I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, because I've heard many of your stories, many of you could come up here and share a similar but slightly different story of something in your life that went crooked, that went outside your plans. I'm going to grab that because I need that. If the Apostle Paul were to come up here, he might share this story from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This might be what he shared. He said, five times I received from the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. I have no idea how he survived that. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, robbers, my own people, the Gentiles, in the city, in the wilderness, at sea, from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Notice all the people and circumstances that were beyond Paul's control. Now, did, did Paul plan for all this hardship and calamity? Well, no, no more than I planned to have a crooked back. But things, these things still happened even though Paul was faithfully serving God. Catch this. Faithfully serving God doesn't mean bad things won't happen to you. Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord only makes good things for a purpose. The bad stuff is just beyond his control. Is that what it says? No. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Then five verses uh, later, we learn that the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So let's get real for a moment. This can be kind of hard to hear, but it's a reality we need to grasp. And our, and our text gives this example beautifully. Paul had plans, he describes those plans, but in order for them to be accomplished, they would also need to be a part of God's plans. 
Paul knew this and submitted himself to God's sovereignty as part of his functional reality. In James 4, James admonishes us as believers to grasp this. He writes in verse 13, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and make a trade and a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then poof, vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and do that. So, let's take a deep collective breath and recognize that we do not have control over people and the outcome of situations and circumstances. Scripture makes it abundantly clear that God is sovereign. This means over the good and the bad. We have a responsibility to respond accordingly, to respond the right way, whether it's the good or the bad. As we submit ourselves to God's will, as we draw near to him, he will reward us with joy, with peace, with contentment. That's literally what this letter is about. Paul expressing joy and peace and contentment in the midst of his imprisonment because he has faith that his sovereign God is working out all things for his ultimate good. Again, that's really hard to do sometimes. And I don't want to come across as though I'm diminishing any struggles that you might be going through right now. I want to encourage you because those struggles are not outside God's sovereignty which means they are not beyond his purposes and the good he has in store for you. Our faith isn't in outcomes. Let me rephrase that. Our faith isn't in good outcomes. Our faith is in the goodness of the God that we serve. Theologian and pastor Charles Spurgeon wrote, God's sovereignty should be the pillow that we rest our heads on at night. It was for Paul and countless of other children of God since. Is it for you? This brings us to the second piece of evidence we need to use to evaluate if we are truly united to Christ and to each other. Submitting to God's sovereignty, I'm going to be super honest here, can be really, really tough, guys. It can be really tough. But we don't have to do it alone. Part of our belonging in God's family means we share a kindred Spirit. Make sure that's a capital S. We share a kindred spirit. If you are a child of God, then you have been granted a newness of life, a transformation from, life, from death to life, have been taken as a citizen of the world, and rescued into becoming, into becoming a citizen of God's kingdom. Ephesians 2 tells us definitively that because of who Jesus is and what he's done, there are no more racial or cultural or social differences between God's children. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 18, says that we have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, that's you guys, that's us, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place by, for God by the Spirit. If you are a citizen of God's kingdom, then the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in your spirit right now. And he's at work 
building us all together as citizens and siblings into a dwelling place for God, which means we all have a part to play. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that's page 1061 in the Blue Bibles. Beginning in verse 12, we're going to skip around a little bit to get a good, solid picture of what this means. <coughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Skip down to verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Catch this. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Ever feel like a weak part of the family of God? I have. Did you know that that's normal? Every member will, every member will because none of us join the family of God fully formed into the image of Christ. We all struggle at times. But did you know that as you struggle, you are an indispensable part of the family of God? Skip over to verse 25. Why? So that there may be no division in the body. But that the members may have the same care for one another. Underline this next verse. Highlight it. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And the evidence of this building project is actually pretty easy to see. Galatians 5.22 and 23 says the evidence will look like Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And guess what? We see all of this played out in our text today. It's super cool. In the way that they describe the care, the affection, the concern expressed in these relationships. Paul writes that news from Philippi, from Philippi would cheer him because, well, he's in prison. He could use some cheering up. Do godly people ever need cheering up? Oh, heck yeah. Of course they do. He points to Timothy as, as an example of a believer who genuinely cares for the welfare of others in the body. How Timothy has proven his worth, meaning that fruit of the Spirit is evident in his life. He, he, he bestows honor upon Epaphroditus by calling him a brother, a fellow worker, a fellow soldier. He describes Epaphroditus' longing to see his friends and family back in Philippi. Do godly people ever miss their families? Absolutely. He explains that the threat of Epaphroditus dying would have caused him crushing sorrow. So Paul is eager to send him home so that he could encourage the people there and that he should be received with great honor and with, with, with reverence because of his faithfulness to Christ in the midst of dying, possibly dying for that work. So did you catch all that? This passage is loaded with shared concern, shared joy, shared sorrow, and shared motivation. A shared kindred spirit, the spirit of the one true living God. So, okay, you might think, so what? What does this mean for us? What, is, what does that look like for us? I think it shows 
us what it looks like to belong, what it looks like to know and be known, what it looks like for when one member suffers, we suffer together. When, when one member is, is honored, like Epaphroditus, we all rejoice together. I think it shows it's, it's okay to take the risk of being vulnerable with each other when we have a shared purpose and a shared motivation in that Holy Spirit. This leads us to our last point. How do we know our unity is genuine? By our shared purpose. We share an absolute willingness to do whatever it takes to advance God's kingdom. This means a willingness to send, be sent, and die for the sake of Christ. In this passage, Paul describes Timothy as this faithful servant of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So his desire is to send him to Philippi to minister to them and to bring them news. He describes Epaphroditus as a a messenger of mercy as he brought a gift to Paul while Paul was in prison who nearly died for that work, for the sake of Christ. Again, his, his desire is to send him back to encourage the church in Philippi. Sending, being sent, risking death, none of this was written in a vacuum. It's not just a list of commands. It's actually lived experiences. None of this unity stuff is abstract. In this passage, we have a real-life example by real people dedicating, dedicated to seeing Christ magnified. And Scripture actually affirms these truths over and over and over again. In Romans 10, 13 through 15, Paul writes, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have never believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. In Acts 13, the church in Antioch, in obedience to the Holy Spirit, and after much prayer and fasting, set aside Paul and Barnabas and send them on the first missionary journey, and the world Christian movement was born. Evidence of our unity can be seen when we, as a body of believers, send and send well. We have this opportunity coming up in just a few weeks as one of our, our teams heads to Thailand. Then in June, another team will be heading to Guinea. Are we, as a church, fasting and praying for God's will to be done in and through these teams as we send them? Sure hope so. We need to be. Like, like right now, we need to be. Because this, these ventures depend on all of us being of one mind, one effort, one motivation. Everyone in this room who is a child of God is an indispensable part of, God, of what God wants to do through his church. This unity will also be demonstrated by a willingness to be sent. When we have the right understanding of who is sending us, we can't help but obey. Whew, this is going to be a hard one. Here's what this looks like from Isaiah chapter 6. The prophet Isaiah receives this vision in preparation for him being sent to the nation of Judah as God's messenger. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, 
and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my lips and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. We don't know this for a fact, but there's a lot of evidence that points to Isaiah actually being sawed in two because of his obedience with this message. But when compared to a vision of the king of kings, death simply has no power over us. But let's get real for a second. How often do we let what people think keep us from this kind of obedience? 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, we have this treasure, meaning the gospel, in jars of clay. Clay jars are not that strong. You can, you can punch a hole through them pretty easily. We are not strong. We have this treasure, the good news of Jesus, in these jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, Struck down, that means killed, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. This is what we should expect when we are sent. Our unity will be evident in how we respond to these afflictions, these confusions, persecutions, and even the threat of death. Do our responses bring God glory? So ask yourself, am I sending well? Think of your children, your grandchildren, those whose lives you impact on a regular basis. Are you preparing them to be sent out as lambs among wolves? Make no mistake. You are sending them. That's not debatable. But are you sending them well? Are you fasting and praying over them? Are you asking God to empower them to withstand the distractions of this world, the temptations of this world? Are you relying on, on God's grace and power to guide their steps? If you're a believer and not dead, which check everybody here, you've also been sent. Every one of us by the same King of kings and Lord of lords that Isaiah glimpsed in his vision. That same king has sent you into your homes, into your workplaces, into your schools, 
into your social groups, into your extended families, to the ends of the earth? Do you realize you have been set apart to do God's work, like it says in Ephesians 2.10? That you are part of the family business of reconciling this world back to God, like it says in 2 Corinthians 5.18. The family business, which means everyone has an indispensable part to play. And have you counted the cost? Because this kind of authentic obedience will cost you everything you can't keep in order to gain infinitely more that you can never lose. In Matthew 16, in verse 24, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father, bless you, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Are you living out this faithful obedience right here in northern Nevada, regardless of what it might cost your job, your reputation, your social status. The world shows unity through silly initiations. We could probably spend a lot of time talking about some of those silly initiations. This is how citizens of God's kingdom demonstrate unity. By our shared faith in God's sovereignty, by our shared kinship through the Holy Spirit, by our shared willingness to do whatever it takes to spread the gospel, no matter what. If you're taking notes this morning, I would encourage you to convert all the we and us statements into I and me statements. Can you make these claims with confidence and point to the evidence? As we wrap this up, I would encourage you to respond in a couple of different ways. Go home and ask yourself some of these tough questions from today. Discuss them with people who know you well and can give input. Take a chance at being vulnerable with a fellow brother or sister in Christ. Do you know why? There's no room for Lone Ranger Christians. There just isn't. It's not designed that way. It doesn't work. Show evidence that you belong by making a commitment to get involved more in, in the church through sending, through, through serving, through groups, by showing that kindred spirit. And then identify someone that you have been reluctant to share the gospel with. And then do it. And if you haven't accepted the invitation to join God's family, if you are still on the outside, if you haven't acknowledged that you have sin and that Jesus is the only way for that sin to be dealt with, I would just ask you, what are you waiting for? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is relevant, that it is vital, that it is not arbitrary, and that there's no parts of it that we can just kind of skip. Lord, through your spirit, your word will reveal truths to us about who you are and what you've done and, and how we should respond. And Lord, I ask for this time of response to be directed 
and empowered by your spirit in this room as each individual wrestles with some of these questions and, and really takes a moment to examine his or her faith and respond in obedience to what you would have them do for their next steps, Lord. We thank you again and we praise you for your word because once it goes out, it does not return void, but accomplishes the work that you have designed it to do. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name.